and the vagabond was little more than a smudge in the wind-whipped darkness. If one were observing the beach from the rear very closely, it would have been possible to notice a small spot where the white caps of the tide were blotted out, slowly crossing the horizon. But that is all. Where he left footprints, they were quickly scattered over with more snow. It was impossible in the dark to tell where the shoreline was beneath the snow and ice, and possibly he had already wandered too far out, and his next step would find thin ice, and his remains would never surface. Or possibly it was only frozen beach underfoot, beneath a deep crevice in the ice, which would refrigerate his wedged carcass for the remainder of the winter, only to spit him out come April for the gulls and early morning joggers to find a soggy mess in the seaweed. He trudged forward, leaning half-blind on the wind, moving like a beleaguered bison beneath all of his rags. Accumulated snowballs clung to the melange of coats and blankets that dangled catawampus from him and inflated his form to three times his actual size, just as butterflies will spread their wings when threatened by some larger predator, adorned with eyes unblinking and unseeing. Sometimes he managed to walk across the top of the hard-packed snow, like the discreet little crystals of ice which the wind stirred and skittered this way and that, glinting in the moonlight. Sometimes the snow would collapse and he would fall in up to his waist. The only thing to do was to keep walking. Farther inland were roads, but the vagabond had once seen a man walking on the shoulder of a highway not a hundred yards ahead of him, pummeled by an errant semi, and he did not like to walk along roads. Farther inland than the roads was a town, but whenever the vagabond walked through the towns, he was shouted at and followed by police. The wind tonight, he thought, must have been the coldest he'd ever felt. It tore in off the lake, little bits of hail slashing at the exposed skin of his nose and cheeks. If he stood still, it was liable to topple him. If he fell wrong, he thought, he may not get back up. He was exhausted, but as soon as he stopped, his sweat would freeze, his heart would slow. He would begin to die. After a long stretch of particularly desolate beach, the vagabond spied a shape on top of the bluff, perhaps a few hundred yards farther up the beach. Through the blowing snow, he could make out a dark house, the first he'd seen in over an hour of walking. As he moved closer, the contours revealed themselves. The house was of minimalist, modern design, all clean whites and beveled edges, tall glass windows and round columns, a squat but sprawling structure, perched perhaps 200 feet above, bearing mute witness to the ceaseless thrashing gloom of the lake. It was an arduous climb, even where the vagabond could simply kick his boots through the chunky snow for it to hold. In some spots, the dune rose vertically, or its face was glazed with a thick, glossy sheet of ice, and he was forced to retreat and reconfigure his route. His vision began to grow blurry, mottled and dark at the periphery. His hands were throbbing red by the time the ground began to level beneath him, and grasping uselessly with fingers he could barely bend at the wavering wisps of dune grass poking out through the ribbled snow. He crawled further inland still before he felt he could stand upright. The hulking presence of the house crashed over him like a wave. Her tall black tinted windows conveyed an irresistible gravity. He staggered a step closer. As a windbreak, the house appeared not only to absorb all light, but all sound as well. For the first time in hours, the vagabond could hear his own thoughts. His brain began to thaw. 
thoughts came back to him piecemeal in no discernible order. He walked around the house and found the driveway untouched, the front door locked. A persistent sound on the far side of the house drew his attention, distinct from the lashing of the wind and water. A plastic tarp had worked itself loose from one of the two-by-fours, which comprised the skeleton of an unfinished addition to the house, and was snapping back and forth in the wind. The vagabond worked his way inside. From some distance it appeared simply as if the house had devoured him. The contractors had left an old radio and a half-eaten bag of potato chips. The vagabond took both with him into the house proper. It was unheated. For the moment, it was enough to be out of the wind, but the air was exceedingly still in a way that unsettled him. After he'd sat for only a few minutes, regained control of his ragged breathing, he found that the chill had snuck past his defenses and was burrowing deep inside of him. He set about making a fire. The fireplace was hung from the ceiling near a corner of the living room by its matte black flue and already half full of scorched debris, crumpled in black and bits of newspaper, twigs, a charcoal log, and a pile of white ash. The house had likely been abandoned sometime in September, left to hibernate until the spring. The vagabond stripped down to his underwear and left his soaking clothes to dry by the fire. Then he turned on the radio in order to disturb the penetrating silence of the place which had begun to manifest as a persistent ringing in his ears, and tuned it to the first channel he could find. With a pillow and a blanket from the couch, he laid himself down on the floor at the foot of the fireplace and went to work, picking the bottom of the chip bag, free of crumbs. Half-melted ice crystals in his beard dripped to the floor. It was not long before he fell asleep. In his dreams, he was walking on a remote beach, not too dissimilar to the one outside, but not too similar either. It was not snowing, and the sky was a deep, rich blue, the darkness gathering on the horizon behind him. The hard-packed, half-frozen sand crunched beneath each step. He found that he was sharing the beach with another, a shadowy man walking perhaps a few hundred yards to his rear. If he'd been any farther back, he'd have appeared only as a speck in the murky twilight. Any closer, and the vagabond would have been able to make out more of his person. For a long time, the vagabond walked and all the while the figure remained just so. Whether he quickened his pace or paused to contemplate the surf, the figure never came any closer, never fell back any farther. Finally, when all light in the sky had been pushed over the horizon, the vagabond stopped and took a seat on a small sandbank amongst the tall grass. Here he waited in darkness, minute piling upon minute, listening to the tide, listening for approaching steps that never came. Yet he was not alone. This he could feel. This he was sure of. And when he awoke, it was still dark. The fire he'd set had died to a smolder, and he did not feel as if he had rested for even a moment, though he could tell he had been asleep for at least several hours. Welcome back, weary travelers, night owls, space oddities, poet laureates, and losers. The time is currently, well, you wouldn't believe me if I told you, and it'll be wrong by the time I finish anyhow. Furthermore, frankly, who cares? Another chilly one out there tonight. 
I wouldn't want to be out in that, I'll tell you that much. The wind tonight brought to you express from the Arctic Circle. All those frozen waves rolling out there in the blackness. No thank you. Rolling and rolling and rolling. Eons upon eons. Makes no difference. What year is it again? Broadcasting tonight, this morning, as always, from the light at the end of the known world. Here there be monsters. And there. I'll be hanging here with all you fine folks till the bitter end. Lucky you, you've got me to keep you company and ferry you along on your journey into the darkness. And I've got the idea of you, I suppose. Isn't that about right? The idea of you and all of these endless rolling black waves. Pop on the cruise control, pour yourself another coffee, light up a cigarette, my friends. I've been assured by my trusty producers that the sun is, indeed, expected to rise once more, eventually. But it'll be a long way getting there. I was the last person to see my grandfather alive. I was very young, he was in the hospital, and everyone else had left the room. He beckoned me over to his bed. I was terrified of him. In that visceral, ineffable way, children fear age and sickness before they finally grow up enough to try and ensnare the ultimate, the infinite, with the lasso of language. He wanted to tell me a story. His eyes were clear and lucid, though I don't think he knew who I was, looking back at it. He'd been in the army during the war. Naturally, he picked up a few friends during boot camp. They had a few days of leave before they shipped out to Europe, and they came here, to the beautiful sandy shores of Madalena. It's basically the same town now that it was then, as I'm to understand, so I imagine they spent their days swimming and their evenings cruising the bars, getting drunk and sleeping on the beach. As a matter of fact, he even mentioned Donna, our still current resident quarter-fed fortune teller down here on the shore, it's customary to sojourn with Donna on your first visit to town, and a lot of folks like to check in with her any time they return. It seems a little trite to me, trusting your fate to a hunk of machine. No offense to Donna, my only friend in this small little snow globe world. But what do I know? Maybe these people are on to something. Maybe it's only through the purity of the mechanical that our wet, meaty little monkey brains can hope to commune with the gods. My grandpa still had the fortune Donna gave him that weekend folded up in his wallet, all those years later. The ink was so faint that I couldn't read it. I remember him holding it up for me to see, the way his hands shook. It was September, and still warm enough that they slept under a tree just down the beach from the mouth of the river, and the twin piers which flank either bank and escort the current out to the lake, the shorter breakwater, and the long north pier which juts me and my beloved lighthouse nearly a half mile out into the lake proper. Of course, back in those days, this was a working lighthouse and not just a half-baked local radio station. Scarecrows around local, of course, folks, as these waves do travel greater distances over the water, and we've got plenty of that here. Helping ships navigate, keeping sailors safe, Nowadays, we here from our perch atop the end of the pier concern ourselves primarily with the insomniacs, the neurotics, and the paranoids. 
keeping you all safe from yourselves, at least until sunrise, one night at a time. An average of 20 people a year drown off of this pier, no matter how many signs they put up to warn people, to educate them, that number seems to stay relatively consistent. The gods of the sea are hungry, it would seem. The main walkway is currently encased in a giant block of ice for the final thousand feet or so, as is the majority of my radio station, and all I can think of are those summer nights when the water is calm. From the shore, with your ears constantly battered by the roar of the surf, it can be impossible to imagine how quiet it is all the way out here. There's a moment in every trek down the long pier when you realize you can hear your own breathing. Even thinking about it now is enough to give me goosebumps. All the ambient noise of the land is gone. The 5,000 sounds you never even noticed being pumped into your brain every moment of every day suddenly cut off. The world you left behind and all you're left with is the sound of your own breathing, the innocent lapping of water at the edge of the concrete, the occasional gull, and the realization of how very, very alone you are. Out here, the lake doesn't need to bluster and puff its chest out. The silence, the smooth surface of the water, belies a mutual understanding, and one you must experience in the pit of your stomach in the pit of your soul, to truly grasp. You are standing in the palm of an indifferent giant. Out here, the lake has you, if it wants you. My grandfather awoke sometime during the night, the second of their three-day trip, to find his friend Tom already awake, gazing out toward where the pier meets the water. George, their third, was still asleep. My grandfather must have stirred in waking up, because without even looking back, Tom began to speak to him. Look, he said, do you see that? My grandfather squinted out into the night, on the far pier. Finally, my grandpa's eyes landed on what he thought might be a small light, dangling off in the distant darkness, so dim that it seemed to disappear if he blinked. He'd have to spend several seconds trying to relocate it. There's someone out there, said Tom still not turning to face my grandfather. Friends, we all know the power of suggestion, and even to his dying day, my grandfather was not sure if he really saw a man out there. In the moment, he thought he might have. Is he fishing, he asked. For a long time, Tom did not respond, his eyes transfixed. I don't know. The next day, so the story goes, my grandfather met my grandmother, and they spent the entire day together. After they shared their first kiss, they parted for the night, and he rejoined his pals on the beach. All three of them were awoken that night, though again Tom was the only one who seemed totally convinced that there was someone out there in the gloom. He has a boat, he said. Look, it's a little boat. George and my grandfather said nothing. The next day, they made a pact amongst themselves to meet back in Madalena a year after the end of the war, whenever that would be. Maybe it would never end. That night at dinner, a cold breeze blew in off the lake. Summer was ending a week before Labor Day. 
Throughout the evening, the wind picked up, a chill settled over the town, and it became clear that they would have to cram together and all sleep in the car they borrowed from the base. But before that, they were going to have one more night out, which ended, inevitably, back on the beach sometime after midnight. They wandered aimlessly, wrapped in the warm, glowing euphoria of bourbon and beer. The wind was really gusting by now, with the sort of sharp chill that will cut to your core after months and months of summer sun and warm air. The three of them made their way out onto the pier, passing a bottle between themselves. The storm was only getting worse by the minute. Somewhere out over the water, the stars ended, cut off by an encroaching storm cloud that stretched horizon to horizon, darker than the night itself. The waves crashed into the walls of the pier, spraying their faces with cold droplets. The wind was howling around them by the time they reached the lighthouse, the lake water washing up onto the concrete, already hyper-slick with lichen. The pier extended some fifty yards beyond the lighthouse, whose bulk still protected them from the full fury of the open water. But to reach the end, you had to squeeze past the structure via a narrow two-foot strip of concrete on either side, fully exposed to the wind and the waves. Perhaps Tom and George were braver than my grandfather, perhaps only more drunk. Perhaps he, having met my grandmother only a day earlier, was feeling especially cautious, like he had something to live for. Whatever the reason, he stayed back on the shore side of the lighthouse, while Tom and George disappeared around the corner and ventured out into the darkness. My grandfather waited there a long time, for what felt like an eternity. The waves grew taller, their weight falling full force against the corrugated sidewalls of the pier, sending cascading plumes of water soaring high into the air, heavy drops of spray pummeling my grandfather. His corporeal form, always so sturdy, bolstered by the arrogance of youth, had never felt so fragile, his grip on nature so precarious. The water washed up higher and in greater amounts, threatening his toes even though he was standing at the highest point of the pier on the center walkway. He braced his body and slid his feet around just a bit on the concrete. It was so slippery that for a while he felt as if he could not move from fear, that one step would send him tumbling to the ground, and once on the ground there would be nothing for him to grab onto nothing to save him from the deluge. Minute after minute passed by. He cried out for his friends, but his voice was stolen by the wind. Surely there was no way they could hear him, even if they were only right on the other side of the lighthouse. What if a foamy sheet of water had washed entirely over the far side of the pier, knocked both of them off their feet and carried them out into the black sea, dragged their heads beneath the surface and pinned them there? thrashed them against the algae-covered walls of the pier. How long could he wait for them? What would he do if he returned to land without them, returned to base without them? He waited and waited. He wanted to move, but he wasn't sure that he could, until finally he made up his mind to wait for them at the beginning of the pier, and began the slow, delicate process of putting one foot in front of the other, until finally he was back parallel with the shoreline. There he stood, one hand shielding his face from the spray, staring hard into the darkness. Finally, two figures began to materialize in the distance. They grew larger as they moved down the pier towards him, and soon he could hear Tom and George's laughter. 
They were so energized that they drove back to the base that night. The following afternoon they shipped for Europe. A few months later, my grandfather heard that Tom had died. His transport ship had been hit by a torpedo, trapping him below deck while the ship slowly sank over the course of many hours. And so it was only he and George that met in Madalena once the war was over, and they continued to do so every summer for nearly a decade after that. Normally they would both arrive on a Friday evening, leave Sunday morning, but one year my grandfather got caught up at his job in the city and couldn't make it out until Saturday morning. When he arrived, he and George went for lunch. Over their sandwiches, George told him about how, the night before, his wife had fallen asleep early. Feeling restless, he left the hotel for a stroll along the beach. On his way back, he came to the piers, where he saw a small rowboat sitting in the calmer water between the two at the mouth of the river. Instantly, he remembered those nights with Tom sleeping on the sand. After a moment to build his nerve, George walked out onto the pier and approached the rowboat. There was a man sitting hunched over on the bench seat, mending a fishing net by the light of his lantern, which hung from a pole standing at the rear of the vessel. He wore a rubber rain slicker and his hat pulled down low, covering most of his face in deep shadow. He looked up as George approached, eyeing him, saying nothing. George stopped in front of the boat, transfixed, all manners and other matters of the superego suppressed by some massive primordial force which bubbled up from within him, from somewhere beyond the known bounds of language. The two men stared at each other for a long while. "'Are you looking to cross?' asked the man. "'How much would you charge me?' asked George. The man stroked his beard and looked out at the lighthouse, spinning rhythmically hypnotic in the darkness. Only what you think is fair. To hear George tell it, he was overcome then by the most powerful dread he'd ever felt in his life, and left. Back to his hotel. Back to his wife waiting for him in their warm bed. The lake nothing more than a distant whisper at the window. Of course it all sounded so silly now, with people all about and the sun shining on such a beautiful summer's day. And after that, George seemed to put the story out of his mind for the rest of the weekend, though it haunted my grandfather all the way back to the city. A week later, he received a phone call from George's wife. He'd been in a car accident that morning and had died. My grandfather stopped visiting Madalena after that, settled into a prosperous and happy life with my grandmother, had my parents. But sometime later, years after George's death, my grandfather's company held a shareholders' meeting right here in Madalena. He went to the meetings, went out to dinner with friends, but otherwise mostly confined himself to his hotel room. He avoided so much as even thinking about the beach, about the lake, until the final evening of his trip. As he sat in his room, sipping on a drink and staring out the window, he found his eye drawn to the blinking lighthouse. Alone out there, a half mile into the abyss. Before he knew what he was doing, he'd tied his shoes and tossed on a jacket and was on his way to the waterfront. It was a pleasant night, if a bit windy. The weather was choppy as he stepped from the sand onto the concrete walkway of the pier. He followed it out, past Donna's darkened booth, out of order, until the sounds and lights of the world began to fade. 
The midway point of their pier was where the safety railings fell away, and the walkway dipped down to only a couple of feet above the level of the water. He stood there for a long, long time, gazing out into the darkness, a darkness which confounded the human eye, too dark to be perceived as even an absence of light. It took on a character of its own, almost seeming to move within itself, somewhere at the very farthest reaches of human perception. He stared and stared, his eyes swimming in cool darkness. His heart began to beat faster and faster. It became difficult to breathe. And then something was moving. Nothing more than a small blot in the inky blackness at first. But as the seconds passed, the figure moved closer, walking down the pier towards him. His heart raced as the figure came ever closer, moving at a steady pace, until finally they were close enough that my grandfather could see it was an old man. A very old man, in fact. As the old man passed my grandfather, he stopped, looked out at the water for a long moment, and then turned to him. My grandfather now from his hospital bed, looked into my eyes for the first time since he'd begun telling the story. I'd never seen the man before in my life, he said, until I looked into his eyes, and then I knew. Those were my eyes. That night, he slipped into a coma. Several days later, while we were out eating lunch, he passed silently into eternity. The vagabond added another log to the fire and poked at the coals until it caught. Out the window he noticed a small light in the great distance, blinking on and off, on and off. He wondered how he had not seen the light before. Sometime while he was asleep the snow had stopped and a stillness was settled over the world outside the house, which seemed somehow to shrink each time he checked on it. The perfect, rippled silence of the snow, palpable at a molecular level, he checked his watch, which had been dead for over a year. A smoldering dread percolated through his chest, the unnameable limbic fear of a fly who suddenly finds that he cannot lift his feet from the web he has landed on. Get some sleep out there, if you're able. Easier said than done for some of you, I'm to understand, but it's important. More important than we could possibly know. Life would be unbearable, incomprehensible even, without sleep. There has to be some lost time in there to account for all the changes which we notice in ourselves only after they've added up over the years. Some way of obscuring the fact that we are, without a single second of interruption, the same person we were when we were six years old. Six months even. You haven't lived a day, not a single solitary second, that you weren't you, utterly and hopelessly trapped. You're you. Imagine with me, folks, being alone in the solitary confinement of your own brain, ceaselessly, sans even the momentary relief of unconsciousness, for 60, 70, 80 years, you simply watch your skin grow sallow and loose before your own eyes, moment by moment your vision slowly fading into more and more abstract terms, 
until it's only lights and colors. Everything rotting on the vine, a sour stench that never quite leaves your nostrils. When, in that long, unbroken succession of moments, did you decide to be the person that you are? I certainly don't remember ever choosing any of this. And yet, here we are, all of us, alone, together. You are alone, aren't you? There's a reason sleep deprivation is a form of torture, you know. It's enough to make you kind of loopy. You've been here before, my friend. You'll be here again. The sun should have been up by now. The vagabond could feel it in his bones. He thought back and tried to remember with any clarity the last time that he had seen the sun, and found instead that his mind was recalling the dream he'd had. He ventured deeper into the interior of the house, eventually drawn like a moth to the glow of an exit sign hung above a doorway. The only light in the house, aside from his fire, casting long oblique shadows over the length of the hallway. The door itself led down to a basement. The vagabond stood at the precipice, listening. A drip of water into a great pool, echoing, echoing, as if through some cavernous expanse. It's that time of night where I turn it over to you good folks out there in the wasteland and take some calls. Caller number one, you're on the air. The caller spoke with a voice that sounded, to the vagabond's ear, almost indistinguishable from his own. Of course, we can never quite hear our own voice the same way that others seem to. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, I suppose I just wanted to tell a story that's recently happened to me. About a week ago, yes, it's, it's almost been a week now, I was up late working. It was sometime after two in the morning when I finally decided to turn in for the night to brush my teeth. When I went into the bedroom, I realized instantly that something was wrong. Even though it would take me another moment to discern exactly what it was, it was this. My wife was asleep there in bed, as usual but there was another lump under the covers next to her already in my spot. I have to be completely honest and say that I was so taken aback that a part of me wanted to flee the scene right then. It was my bedroom and my wife. So I moved to pull the covers back and I saw myself asleep in bed wearing the very same clothes it was unmistakable. I stopped breathing then, so as not to risk waking him or myself. So I left. I don't know why, but I didn't know what to do if I stayed. I drove for an hour or two until the adrenaline wore off and I felt my eyelids drooping. The roads out there in the desert are so straight and they go forever. They're liable to put you into a trance. The way the lines on the road just keep coming, coming, coming through your headlights. 
pulled over into a little motel and checked in. The front desk guy was more old than young, wiry, with a ring of wispy white hair. He possessed a nervous, almost jittery energy about him. He said, I'll put you in room 11, and then handed me a key from a hook on the wall behind him. I think you'll sleep well in there. I can't remember any other hotel clerk ever using that particular phrasing. But at the time, I was so tired, and the notion seemed so obvious on his face that I thought nothing of his using it, other than perhaps that he was commenting on my exhausted and haggard appearance. Only, once I pulled the covers up and turned out the lights, I couldn't sleep at all. It didn't help that the air conditioning didn't seem to work. In hotels, I always like to make the room freezing, as cold as the thermostat will go. I could barely keep my eyes open, and yet when I closed them, nothing changed. My mind circled around the black hole of unconsciousness, but kept its distance, never falling into its orbit. It was shaping up to be a miserable night. And then, I realized something was wrong. Something that wouldn't let my mind rest like it had already figured it out, but wouldn't tell me the answer. So I sat in the dark, blinking and feeling over the growing, sour feeling in my stomach, turning it about in my mind. My eyes slowly adjusted to the dark, and just as I'm about ready to consider the possibility that my imagination has been carried away with itself, I realize what I'm looking at materializing like a vapor in the shadows. Two beady eyes behind the slats of the vent in the ceiling right above my head. I'm staring straight at them. They are staring straight at me. He's the night clerk. If he notices me, he doesn't look away. Barely even blinks, maybe only once a minute. I rolled over, pretended to have seen nothing. I could still feel his eyes on me, unflinching. When I closed my own eyes, I could see them still. His mouth was almost entirely hidden to me, but it was plain just from his eyes that he was grinning like a madman. Without a word, then, I got out of bed, turned on the light, got dressed, and hightailed it out of there. There was nobody manning the front desk when I walked out. There was a man smoking a cigarette in the parking lot, wearing a suit and hat, in the old style. He nodded at me as I was getting into my car, which is probably nothing. Probably something he forgot about doing a second after he did it if he gave the gesture any thought at all. But I thought of it repeatedly for the next several hours. I don't know what to make of it. It was probably nothing. I slept in the back seat of my car at a rest stop in the middle of the desert. There's a whole lot of country out there. Anyhow, uh, thanks for taking my call. 95% of the known universe is dark matter. Not just unknown, but in fact fundamentally unknowable. At least to us. 
Maybe there's some future version of us that'll be able to wrap their heads around another one or two percent. But they will be so different from us that we'll barely recognize them as ourselves. Cause and effect breaks down at the subatomic level. It's like getting a little farther out into the ocean than you intended to, reaching down with your foot, expecting to find the sandy bottom and not finding it. And now you've got a mouthful of salt water and you're coughing, out of breath and all out of sorts, muscles burning already, flailing for something solid to grab hold of, something that isn't there, will never ever be there. And there's another wave coming. The floor could be six inches beneath your toes, it could be sixty feet. It wouldn't matter much. Even a small wave can be humbling, an effective reminder of how tiny and fragile your corporeal form really is. It's easy to forget in adult life, in modern day-to-day, that feeling of absolute powerlessness in the face of incomprehensible forces. You haven't even gone far from the shore, and looking around you realize that if the next wave were a little bigger and took you under, nobody would even notice. You'd disappear immediately beneath the immensity, while everyone on the beach continued sipping their Mai Tais and reading their paperbacks, admiring the view. The dirt floor of the basement looked primitive in the dim red light of the exit sign the bare cinder block walls exceedingly domestic in contrast. Only three walls were visible. The vagabond would not venture beyond the light, and so the existence of the fourth, the farthest from him, directly across from the bottom of the stairs in the direction of the lake, would, ultimately, have to be assumed. On the ground lay an arcane arrangement of semi-large stones, half buried in the soil, the conclusion of which also lay somewhere in the unplumbable shadows. A plain mole sat on the ground amidst the stones near the edge of the darkness, filled with a dark liquid which the vagabond thought, in the strange light, might be blood. A knocking on the front door startles him from his trance. It continued, three terse knocks, followed by an interval of silence, never lasting more than ten seconds, never louder, never softer, never rushed, never hesitant. He followed it to its source, somewhere in the upper depths of the house. A heavy wood door, fresh painted black, perfectly flat, perfectly smooth, in the modern style. No visible sign of the craftsman's hand. The door shook not at all, despite the great weight which with the knocks evidently landed. The room contained no windows to the outside, nothing so much as a peephole through which the vagabond might assess his visitor. He would not open the door, which bore no visible lock, and so he retreated back to his fire. It was Russian scientists in the Arctic who recently made a discovery which confirms something that people who pride themselves on knowing these sort of things have known, or at the very least strongly suspected, going on more than half a century. A Nazi base, burrowed in the ice at the top of the globe. Heinrich Himmler, or... What happens if you put a modern industrial state and its war machine into the hands of Aleister Crowley and take away all his famous decency and respect for the dignity of his fellow humans? Occultists with MP40s and Panzers. Less credible, more titillating, and likely never provable one way or the other, 
are reports of the American Air Force pilots getting into an extended dogfight with alien aircraft in the airspace above the base. UFOs, extraterrestrials from outer space. Of course, even if the government had encountered alien life forms, it goes without saying that they'd never tell you. And so if someone from the CIA or Navy intelligence is trying to insist to you that the little green men are really, really real, it's highly advisable to look in the opposite direction of wherever they're waving that colorful handkerchief in your face. If you're lucky, you might just catch a glimpse of whatever it is they'd actually rather you didn't see. Or unlucky. The Empire never ended. Indeed, Mr. Philip K. Richard. Indeed, of that by now, there can be no doubt. All it takes is a preemptory glance at the rat lines, the underground and not-so-underground networks that brought scores and scores of Nazis, some of Hitler's top people, over to South America, Argentina, NASA, the highest reaches of the United States government, and corporate plutocracy. The Fourth Reich, staffed and guided by the same ideology that drove the Blitzkrieg across Europe, that kept the logbooks at Auschwitz and Dachau, had, of course, no problem at all killing a third of the people living on the Korean peninsula or poisoning the farms of Vietnam for generations. 300,000 people. What does that even mean? What do 300,000 people, full of hopes and fears and love and stories, what do 300,000 people look like? 300,000 souls blinked out in an instant in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, nothing more than shadows on a wall. Even their ability to die stripped from them, the very essence of their humanity stolen. In our Promethean arrogance, we took the sun itself, our very creator, the sun, god of human civilization by whatever name you know him, stretching into the oozing primordial swamps of prehistory and pre-prehistory, the son who created us and gave us eyes so that he might admire himself and his work in all its glory, and we dropped it on the land of the rising sun. We live in an age of malaise, of darkness, wandering a godless wasteland. We cry out in search of God and find only our own reflection staring back at us with bloodshot, irradiated eyes. It's all cyclical, of course. Hitler wrote freely about how inspired he was by the American system and Jim Crow. The empire never ended, and it didn't begin in 1933, either. It simply changes P.O. Box addresses now and again for convenience and appearances. Corporate mergers and acquisitions, British concentration camps for the Boers in Africa, famine in India, in Ireland raping and pillaging their way across the planet with a stiff upper lip, all in the name of the queen and civilization and cheap tea and spices. The blood of a thousand, a hundred thousand, spilled out of sight over the horizon for your convenience and in your name. The howls of the untold masses of humanity stretching across the eons, drown out by the sound of a cash register, quarterly profits on the rise. St. Patrick drove the snakes out of Ireland. The snake, of course, being the long-time paradigmatic symbol of the devil himself. Then he drove out the druids, 
the mystics, took all the magic on the island and drove it into the sea, ripped the people up by their roots and severed their connection to the earth, to nature, to their own history, left them with not a phantom limb so much as a phantom consciousness, a gaping, gnawing hole somewhere beneath waking recognition, beneath language. We go out in the woods at night and listen desperately for the earth to talk back to us, to hear anything, anything at all that is in ourselves, and are met with stony, resolute silence. The wires have been cut. There's no longer a route for the signal to be transmitted. And in its place, he gave them Bibles. Homogenize and standardize, ever the corporate mantra. In England, they're left with a massive bunch of boulders standing in formation atop one another in a field, which modern science tells us shouldn't be there, and yet there they are, defying us, and not just sitting there, but aligned in perfect harmony with the choreography of the rest of the solar system. And nobody there or anywhere has got a single solitary clue what the hell any of it means or what it's for. St. Patrick, a Roman Catholic, of course. They'll kill you and then conquer the world in your name, under the banner of peace and commerce. Whether it's the Romans or the Federal Bureau of Investigation, whether you're Christ the King or Martin King Jr. It's an organism honed through evolution, this thing, this invasive and corrosive blight on the human soul, which puts men in mortal competition with each other for resources every day when they step out of their front door and into a world of abundance. We will never know true peace until it can be exercised. Endlessly, endlessly plastic, like the food you eat, or the landmass in the Pacific the size of a small nation. The empire never ended, not even close, not by a long shot. The empire never ended. They killed Christ the man in 33 AD, and then when it suited them, they killed him again. A much slower process than crucifixion this time, but as totalizing, turning the gospel of unity and charity and love of your fellow man, cooperation, the only thing that's ever gotten us anywhere good, into one of greed and selfishness and indulgence of, screw you, pal, I got mine, where God's your best friend and you have private conversations and he tells you that everything you do is okay with him that you're his very special little boy or girl and whatever you want to do is a-okay, cosmically speaking. So go for it. Prosperity gospel, the rocket fuel of the American empire. Such an inversion of Christ's own gospel is to be... And I'm sorry to do this to you, my friends, but I'm afraid it is that time of night. Satanic. The worship of the self of money. Besides, there's no room left for God in the equation anyways. We may think highly of ourselves at the best of times, that we might aspire to the heights of beauty and grace which makes humans human, but man at his roots, at the very core of his being, is nothing more than a scared, shivering animal, despised by his most basic desires. Just ask the algorithm, ask anyone in advertising. Ask the salesman, that nagging fellow. He used to just knock on your door, but somewhere along the way we let him inside of our homes. We put TVs in our living rooms, radios in our children's bedrooms, iPads in their cradles. 
We are nothing more than ones and zeros, homo economicus, brains that can be manipulated in entirely predictable ways by the salesman who knows exactly where to press his greasy little index finger. We are what we want, and what we want is, well, I hate to say it, folks, but it's whatever the hell they want us to want. Nobody on the planet thinks that advertising works on them, and yet they keep spending a billion and one dollars a year on the stuff. Curious how that works. We proudly define ourselves by our consumer choices. Here's another little experiment. If you live in a city in America of any size, just try looking somewhere, any old place, and see how many ads you see. See if there's anywhere you can look where for one merciful second you don't have to be staring at someone trying to sell you something that you don't need or want. And it's not just our public spaces. The natural world, we've let them defile. It's in your pocket. Relentless. Relentless! I mean, Christ, you all claim to care so much about children in this country when the average child watches 40,000 commercials a year, selling them trinkets and poison. By the time an American child is three years old, they can recognize, on average, about a hundred brand logos. We dream the way they tell us to dream. That old empire at it again, folks. There's nobody left to colonize abroad, so they've turned their sights inward. The body cannibalizing itself. Our own... Ooh, sorry. Our own children, commodified, commercialized, dehumanized, turned into livestock. Look, God promised you an eternal life. Whether you buy that or not, if you're a wagering sort, I'd say you probably do. No comment from yours truly. Either way, the jury's still out. The only true chance that you have at immortality that you can take to the bank in this lifetime is your children, living on after you. But we breed and nurture them for the benefit of that old salesman, as grist for the mill of capital. We sacrifice our children, our immortal souls, to Moloch. Moloch, Moloch, whose blood is running money. Because, of course, we killed God a long time ago. Nietzsche said it. Oppenheimer did it. The knocking stopped. Still, the sun refused to rise. The vagabond felt tired, and yet when he laid down, he found that he was not tired, and so he rose and added more logs to the fire. The lighthouse blinked away in the distance, occasionally lighting up the room through the large window. Something, the vagabond was almost sure, it hasn't done before. Despite the roaring fire, the cold seemed to encroach a little further with every hour, an indomitable, inevitable force. When he returned to the basement, he found that the stones had been rearranged, or he was fairly certain that they had been, in any case. Their smooth, freckled surfaces were faintly marked with red designs, which differed from stone to stone. A pair of human legs drew his attention. They were lying prone in the dirt on the other side of the room. 
They were not moving. The waist and upper body were obscured in the darkness, but it seemed very likely from where the vagabond was standing that those parts were not there where they ought to have been. One of the only memories the vagabond has of his father is at the aquarium when he was a young boy. His father was saying goodbye in his own way, though he wouldn't realize that until years later. He ran away a week or so later, or perhaps it was that he died of cancer. He could never quite remember which. Of course, like any boy, he loved the beluga whales. He loved the sharks. But it was not these which he found visiting him in his dreams that night, and for many nights following, well into young adulthood. It was the Japanese spider crab, with its unholy size and horrible claws. There were four at the aquarium in their small dark box, just standing at the bottom of all that water, menacing him, nearly as tall as he was, and surely ready, if not for the glass, to wrap their awful legs around his face until he turned blue and cold. He asked his father why they looked like they did. The ocean's a deep place, he told him, deep and dark and cold and full of things we were never supposed to see. And the deeper and darker you go, the worse the sons of bitches get. There's no room for God, and by God if there isn't hardly any room left for man. You don't make choices, I don't make choices, hell the president doesn't really make any choices. And it's not that it's predetermined by God necessarily. People used to make choices, to make history, or at least trick themselves into thinking they were. But no, it's money. Money makes the decisions. Capital. It controls us. It controls how we spend our time. It shapes our lives to its will. Shapes our very landscapes to extract from us what it needs. Shapes our imaginations. Sets us against each other. Against ourselves. Makes us destroy our own planet. The very Garden of Eden, which has birthed and nurtured us since we lived in trees to feed it. That bottomless hunger. The ceaseless devouring infinite growth on a finite planet, terraforming our world into something utterly hostile to human life, too, too hot, lush green forests consumed by fire. Please pardon our dust as paradise is reshaping into a living, breathing hell by our own toil, by our own volition, every single day. For whose benefit, then? We are slaves birthing children into lives of slavery. A businessman cannot choose to move his capital into a less profitable venture when a more profitable venture is available, even if the less profitable venture would stand to benefit himself, his family, his very species. Even if he wanted to, the shareholders would not allow it. Even if the shareholders would allow it, the market would not, would drive him out of business to ensure that the capital moves to where it needs to move. Kings and queens of old made laws in all of their flawed humanity. They shaped the world with their empathy and cruelty and benevolence and vindictiveness, but no more. We sold our agency down the river long ago. Nobody writes the laws of the economy. 
they simply follow them. Slaves to a virus of the mind, a real living foreign entity manipulating our very thoughts. We worship a God that is not God, with a mind and purpose all its own, a dark tower penetrating the vastness of the sky somewhere in the blighted recesses of our mental landscape. An extraterrestrial being to get right down into it, folks. Just probably not the kind that the Nazis were dogfighting over the North Pole. Be safe now. The temperature out there is dangerously cold and getting colder. The hour now is later than you could possibly believe. It is still dark. The vagabond begins to wonder if it will always be dark. The batteries on the radio die, and soon even the static fades to nothing. The fire dwindles toward its twin fate. The silence in the room is apocalyptic. The vagabond stands, crosses the room to the window to look at the outside world, and sees only his own reflection. The silence was inside of him. <laughs>